Hello, I'm Rob McCollum, one of the producers and the director of 1865, the audio drama. Thank you for joining us for this Inside the Episode, Episode 9 of Season 2. Lots and lots of complicated history in this episode. How much of it was real? How much of it was fiction? No one better to ask than the writing team, Stephen Walters and Eric Archilla. Guys, welcome back. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having us. Hey, Rob. So I know this whole 8, 9, 10 chunk, Steve, was incredibly difficult for you. You fought with it. You rewrote it. You threw things out. Both you guys were on the phone until four in the morning, multiple occasions. <laughs> Why was this so hard? Well, I think the history itself is very complicated. You know, I think in the first two chunks of the story, you know, the prologue episodes, Grant is in a clear state of resistance to wanting to be president and then ultimately makes the decision to stand as the nominee. In the middle episodes, Grant is in a state of resistance. He's trying to keep the the peace. He doesn't want to declare war again, but ultimately he does declare martial law and root out the clan, drive them into hiding. But in his second term, it is messy, it is complicated, and Grant is, is very difficult to pin down. You know, the facts themselves are not friendly to a dramatist because they are so nuanced and they are so complex. And ultimately what we arrived at was is you know, this idea, we talked about this in the Inside the Series episode, but where we landed, Eric and I, was is we decided that Grant's story really ends when he decides that he is not going to stand as the Republican nominee for a third consecutive term in the election of 1876. So we restructured the back episodes with that in mind, and we sort of, you know, zoomed in on the Whiskey Ring scandal, which, of course, we get into in this episode. For those of you who are familiar with the history, you may be thinking to yourselves, well, hey, listen, some of the stuff that's in this episode doesn't feel like my understanding of what's in the history, and we want you to know that that's intentional. We basically want the audience to have the experience of what Grant experienced. And to do that, we've taken some historical liberties. But because of that, we also felt that it would be a really good idea to bring in a real historian to talk about the actual history, not Eric and I's dramatized version of it. So that led us to calling one of our friends, Dr. Greg Jackson. Exactly. So I thought it would be perfect time to bring him into this inside the episode. He, he's had to endure several late night calls with you trying to figure all this out, Steve. So I wanted to hear his experience of it all. So joining us now on the podcast is Dr. Greg Jackson. He's an assistant professor of integrated studies and assistant director of national security studies at Utah Valley University, but he is known probably to most of our audience as the host of a really cool podcast called History That Doesn't Suck. So he has wrestled with trying to make history approachable to the general audience and successfully makes it not suck. It really That's doesn't. right. His podcast does not suck. It it's awesome. It's, it's, suck. One of, it's one of my favorite podcasts out there. I really encourage all of our listeners. If you haven't heard history that doesn't suck, give it a try. Well, and let's see if he can help us make this podcast not suck. Please welcome <laughs> Dr. Greg Jackson. Greg, thank you so much for being here on the Inside the Episode podcast. It's my pleasure. Welcome, Professor Jackson. Welcome, Greg. I should uh, say Dr. Jackson. Dr. Yes. Jackson. That's right. By the way, Greg, I want to congratulate you on the air, uh, has recently received tenure. Is that correct? I have indeed. Yes. Congratulations, it's, my friend. Uh, thank you. It's definitely a good item to check off on the academic career. That also means you can tell us what you really think now. This can be, this can be Dr. <laughs> Jackson unbridled because now there's nothing anyone can do about it. It's true. Uh, of course, I've always had a bad habit of being really honest, uh, which... Yeah, you know, hasn't bit me yet, but you know, we'll see. 
Well, well, Greg, speaking speaking of honesty, uh, that actually is a really great segue to sort of begin this conversation, because one of the reasons that we wanted you to come here is to to tell our audience some of the real history behind this period, Grant's second term. Grant was this man who's known for being uncompromisingly honest, and yet his name becomes synonymous with corruption. And, and actually, Grantism is this colloquial term that's developed to describe the corruption of Washington. How did that happen? How did it? How did someone like General Grant, who's known for being honest, get saddled with this, this moniker? Well, I think the real irony here is that it's really one of those situations where someone's best quality can become their worst quality. He is such an honest person that he projects that honesty onto other people. So it's not like, Grant is stupid by any means. This is a man who, you know, largely is to credit for the Union victory in the Civil War. He, he knows strategy. He knows how to, to be a leader. But there is a night and day difference between, frankly, the honesty of battle where, you know, bullets don't lie. They either hit you and kill you or injure you or they don't. And that works for Grant. But in the world of politics, where your enemy doesn't meet you face to face on the battlefield, but rather might meet you with a grin and a handshake and assure you of his, her friendship. Well, that is not Grant's world. He's so inclined to believe people, uh, to, to think that they mean well and that they're patriots, you know, and, and all those sorts of good things. He just, he never learns better. Well, and also it wasn't just the whiskey ring scandal. There were, there were several other scandals that led into this, right, Eric? Well, Rob, you're asking the wrong person. We've got the professor here. So let's, let's uh, direct that towards him. Professor Jackson, um, what are, what are some of the early scandals that, that faced the, the grand administration? We touched a little bit on the scandal that got Ely Parker removed from office, but uh, what are some of the other scandals that led up to the whiskey ring? Well, right out the gate, I'd go with Jay Gould and Jim Fisk who are looking to manipulate the gold market. They have an in with President Grant. And of course, the, the president's convinced that they mean well, that they're worried about farmers and, and how the gold market's impacting them. And then they start offering the president gifts because, you know, they're, they're just nice guys. That's how President Grant sees it. So it doesn't even click in his head that maybe taking them up on private rides in rail cars could be construed as kind of being a corrupt thing to do. And then eventually it becomes clear that they're actually manipulating the price of gold for their own benefit. And President Grant steps in, does the right thing, corrects it, but that leads to Black Friday. This is September 24th, 1869. And so we have this economic crash here and Grant looks, well, no one's laying the blame right on him, but here he was buddy-buddy and chummy with these two. And so everyone's just kind of looking at him thinking, really, you didn't see this coming? Like, you know, what, what, what's the deal, Grant? It, we expect better. So what, so let me ask you, Greg, is it, is it, I mean, cause I, I struggle with, uh, this chapter of the story, uh, for a lot of reasons, you know, Grant is a very perplexing figure. What I've done is, is I found ways to put my frustrations with Grant into the mouths of some of the other characters in the story. But what is it? Is it, is he just callow? Is he just naive? Is he... I mean, you know, there are days where I call Eric in a panic or not a panic, but just like in an outburst of frustration. And I'm like, he's either stupid or he's complicit. And history's for, <laughs> and history's forgiving him because he's the hero of Appomattox. And I keep going back to, you know, to what you said, which is like, no, 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 it's not that he was complicit. He just, he was, he, he was honest and he believed that everyone else must, must be too. But wh what is it? What, what, in the midst of all that complication, I mean, what, what's Grant telling himself? Yeah. I 
he's telling himself that his friends must be patriots. Frankly, I, I think uh, naive is probably the right word. I mean, I, I don't want to overreach with that. This is a very accomplished, capable person. I think that's part of where we get to the frustrations that you're talking about, Steve, where it, it's almost hard to wrap your head around the idea that Ulysses S. Grant could be this naive, but he's so, you know what, let me dial back naive and let's go with the word trusting. That is really it. He's just so trusting. And there's enough naive uh, wrapped up with the trusting that, you know, we get things from Black Friday to Credit Mobilier to the Whiskey Ring. Um, and every single time, here he is shocked at the, at the outcome, which is just shocking to us by the time you get to the Whiskey Ring. I mean, how many times can the same guy be surprised at the scandal? Yet, here we are. Well, to Grant's credit, um, the political landscape of Washington, D.C. at this time is perplexing to us. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the different factions of the Republican Party and um, just what was happening politically in Washington at the time? Eric, that's a great question. But Greg, before you dive in, let me just sort of like give you some some background on the kind of shorthand that we are using to talk about the, the Republican Party and the, the various factions. We call the liberal Republicans reform Republicans, and we call the sort of stalwarts, we, we lump them all together and call them the grant men. And that's just because obviously the word liberal Republican to a modern audience sounds like an oxymoron. And then, you know, the word stalwart doesn't really mean anything to us. And so we just wanted to use some simpler terms. But I wanted you to know that so that you knew what our audience was was hearing. And then so you can sort sure. of translate that into what actually happened. Okay, so the Republican Party is starting to split as Reconstruction plays out. Now, paramount within the Republican Party's ideology at its organization back when Lincoln was elected and so forth was being anti-slavery. But of course, being anti-slavery in and of itself isn't the same as being an abolitionist, as anyone familiar with the Lincoln administration should be aware. So by this point, Lincoln's gone, and you've got those within the Republican Party who are taking it in more of a pro-business, kind of calm down the Reconstruction direction, and those are the liberal Republicans, while the Grant men are those that are interested in continuing to pursue Reconstruction in the, the way that Grant has set it up which frankly is it's the most aggressive option out there. Yeah, as we talked about in the previous episodes, the radical Republicans are kind of a dying breed. We saw Thaddeus Stevens die. We've lost Bingham. We've right before this episode, we lost Sumner. So how has that shifted the landscape? Well, you put it well saying that, you know, they're they're dying, they're they're disappearing, and it's really reflecting what America is at this point. I think it's really important to remember that during the Civil War itself, even the Republican Party, those that were truly adamantly abolitionists, they kind of had to dial down that language. The North was not interested in fighting a war for the sake of ending slavery. They were by and large willing to fight a war to preserve the Union. And that was it. And, and it took a while before that could evolve to be a second end goal of the Civil War. So as we come out of Reconstruction, and there is more of this truly anti-slavery abolitionist attitude that's discussing true equality for all Americans, that was never a vision that caught on with middle America by the time we're into the 1870s. So it's really not surprising, actually, to see radical Republicans continuing to recede from being a part of the ideology as Reconstruction plays out and as fatigue kind of sets in. And so the Republicans are seeing that they kind of need to have a more centrist tone if they want to win votes. 
it's interesting. If you look at, say, the election of 1872, right, where you have the sort of radicals kind of going by the wayside, you have the rise of the sort of reform faction, the liberal Republican faction, which gives us, you know, the candidacy of Horace Greeley, who is a, a former Republican who defects from the party and, you know, runs on the right. Democratic ticket. Uh, I mean, it's this, you're starting to see these these things coming apart at the seams. And then over the course of Grant's second administration, it seems that guys like James Garfield, you know, they they start to cool on the idea of, you know, strong reconstruction policies, strong enforcement of the 13th, 14th, and 15th. And I think that's probably in reaction to their constituencies. So it seems that I think Ron Chernow in his book, I think he called it a moral fatigue that the nation was experiencing during this time. It was like, they, it was not their priority. Their priority was, frankly, business. It was expansion. It was growth and money. I mean, so how did all that factor into Grant's second term? Yeah. So I think Chernow nails it. Moral fatigue, there are no two better words in the English language that you can put together to describe the United States in the 1870s. There just are not a lot of Americans. Basically, is Black Americans and a few what we would call radical white Americans that are interested in pursuing an agenda where Black Americans have true equality with white Americans. We gloss over this sometimes in the present where we tend to think that, you know, end of slavery, boom, that means equality. And you can look at many other countries for other examples of how just because people aren't slaves, it doesn't mean that they have equality. We can look at various empires throughout history and see that there can be a lot of different levels to society. So what we need to remember in the present is that just because slavery has ended, that doesn't mean equality. What we've got are first-class citizens and second-class citizens. And frankly, a lot of Americans are okay with that. If you think about it, that's really what Andrew Johnson was about. Here he was as president saying, yeah, I'm fine with the 13th Amendment. We've preserved the union and we've ended slavery. And now... Johnson saying, I'm going to congratulate myself on us having done what we said we were going to do. This idea of actual equality between the races, that's too far for him. And that's too far for the majority of America, frankly, at that point. Which we dealt with in the last episode with the resurgence of the Democratic Party and Andrew Johnson himself coming back in reaction to Grant's uh, attack of the KKK. He's, he's saying it's, it's despotism and tyranny. Um, he's talking about the corruption of the Grant men. Well, and we even have Johnson saying in this episode, it's the greatest political comeback in American history. And it, it kind of seems like it maybe was to have an impeached president returning and getting voted back into office. I know there's some precedent for that, but tell me about a little of the history. Has that ever happened before, Greg? We, we've had impeachments. And when I say impeachments, I'm talking about other offices as well. We should remember that U.S. president isn't the only office that is impeachable. But to date, we have four presidents that have gone through uh, an impeachment process. Nixon resigned before things could really get there. Bill Clinton finished his term. Donald Trump finished his term. So no, we haven't seen any other impeached president come back and hold a major office like that of senator. You know, if you get into the political history of the United States, you'll find that this is more common than people think. We are used to presidents basically finishing uh, their their second term, right, if they get the second term, and then kind of disappearing as though they've they've sort of done their final act. That hasn't always been the case. Think about John Quincy Adams, who doesn't bear the mark of impeachment. But after his presidency, after, frankly, his not all that successful presidency, he became one of the most successful reelected representatives in the House that the United States has ever seen. Yeah, I was going to say, I think John Quincy Adams, you know, time in Congress was far more effectual than his time in the White House. 100%. So if there's one thing that's worth 
seen as you look at history, then, you know, if you want to think about the president as well, these are elected offices. That's what happens in a republic. People can, can bounce from one office to another. This conversation is making me think of something, and it's a big can of worms, but I think we should open it. You know, one of the things that Johnson is is railing at Grant about on the floor of the Senate, you know, when he makes this big speech, you know, he gets a standing ovation when he comes into the hall, but he's, he's basically saying that Grant's, you know, p- trying to position himself for a third term. And that's one of the first things that the democratically controlled House of Representatives does is pass a resolution condemning a third term for President Grant. And of course, the events of this story that we're telling happened prior to the 22nd Amendment. So there is no legal reason why Grant could not have run for a third term. There is only the, the right. question of the precedent of George Washington. Now, what we've seen from Grant in our painting of him is that he is wrestling with this decision, that he does not want to do it. He is not hungry for power. He is not hungry for ambition. Ultimately, we're going to see that the whiskey ring is going to cause Grant to, uh, you know, to throw in the towel and send out a declination letter and walk away. But there's certainly this period of time where that's an open question, at least for the American public and for a lot of people in the halls of power in Congress and in, and in the White House even. So what is the deal with Grant's third term? I know when I was structuring out the last three episodes, I was up in New York and I remember I called you and I was like, Greg, you have to explain it to me because I don't understand. <laughs> so it's one of the reasons- <laughs> I remember our chat. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on because I wanted you to talk to our listeners about the real history of Grant and yeah. the third term. I think we have a bad habit, both in the present and in history, of trying to fit people into very static boxes. You know, we, we want to look at an ideology and you want to say, oh, this person, you know, stood for A or stood for B. And we are not very comfortable with acknowledging that people evolve and change. And sometimes those changes can even be by just a few clicks, a few degrees. So I don't see any great inconsistency in Grant saying, I am so done with this. Being president sucks. People are stabbing me in the back. I'm done. And then getting some distance and thinking to himself, man, I don't like the way the country's going. Well, maybe it wasn't as bad as I'm remembering. I'm willing to get back in the fight. Spoiler alert, if anybody has Google, you'll know that Grant did not stand as a candidate in 1876, but he did try to four years later. Is that right, Greg? Yeah, well, in fact, he is a candidate and he does kind of have to be talked into it because frankly, he has no interest in being put forward as a candidate who then doesn't get the nomination. That would be embarrassing. And it is embarrassing because that's totally how it goes down. But I think he's a little rested. And with urging from friends, he's willing to get back in the fight. And so he stands but a dark horse candidate does emerge and that's how we end up with President Garfield. Right. And I think I fall into the trap of judging Grant through a modern perspective. I think as a playwright, I can't help myself but do that because I'm aware of the fact that the folks that are going to be receiving this, at least, you know, while I'm around, I mean, I guess in theory, people will be listening to 1865. In theory, if podcasts are still a thing, some person might find it long after all of us are gone, you know, after it's not a thing anymore. Some some nerd that loves history will discover it and listen to it. Absolutely. May- you'll, you'll be buried in the bibliography of a dissertation written in the year you know, 2400. It'll be great. Well, I hope I'm not in a dissertation. Oh, my God. But that's kind of my point, though, is that like I feel like that as a dramatist, I, I make the mistake often of judging characters from history through the, through the you know, context of today. And in the context of today, one of the, the things that I think I struggle with from the modern perspective is this question of why didn't he run in 1876 for a third consecutive term? Because the fight for the freedmen was not one. It was clearly not one. The violence
violence on the campaign trail in 1876 was as bad as it had ever been. You had the rise of the red shirts in South Carolina. You had the Hamburg massacre. I mean, it was obvious that thing, the situation was not resolved. And yet he sort of, he, he declines. He, he stops fighting. In the middle of the whiskey ring, he takes off his crown and he says, I'm done. He relinquishes the crown. And it's like looking at it as a character, that's the end of Grant's journey. Because if Grant was really going to finish the fight, he would have kept going. So it's like, I guess, what, what, why? Why didn't he? Why is he so disappointing? He disappoints me. Does he disappoint you? Why, why, Greg? Help me. Uh, uh, <laughs> I understand. Help, what you Steve. Mean. He's um, really in a dark place right now, Greg. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. So let me just throw Steve into an even darker place. Uh-oh. Um, and it's in an odd way to, to redeem Grant slightly, but I guess, well, I think we have a tendency, and I will also say this is what people do in the present all the time. When they look at the president, they tend to think this is someone who has far more power than they really do and lose sight of the fact that this is just one branch of the government and there are checks and balances all the way down. So my more depressing thought for you is to say that, yes, Grant probably would have won if he had run for a third consecutive term. I personally would argue that it would not have made a difference oh. in terms of reconstruction in the long run. Because if we're really honest, America was not ready to create a society in which Black and white Americans enjoyed the same civil liberties, mm. period. Uh, America just wasn't ready. And you see that when you look at the factions in the Republican Party. It was not going to accept the, the sort of reconstruction that Grant was trying to do. Well, which, you know, today I should hope all of us look at and say, by God, we wish that's what happened. That's what should have happened. That's the true promise in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. American society at the time wasn't ready for it and choked. And yet I should say, we, we say this in the podcast, but the man who wrote those words owned slaves and profited, as we wrote, handsomely from the practice. Yeah. Yes. So what I think, though, about Grant in the third term is he could have at least stopped the walk back. Uh, we talked about this with Dr. Ray Christian a couple episodes ago. We had black men in Congress, a large contingent of considering that there weren't any eight years before this. And now the South is able to walk back all that progress and stop voting rights. And so we hope that at least Grant would have been able to hold the line. And Greg, I think this is a question. Did corruption play a role in the in the reason why the walk back happened? Because it feels to me like it, it must have. Because here you have Rutherford B. Hayes coming in, a Washington outsider, right? He's the governor of Ohio, I believe, at the time. He had served in Congress before. But, you know, he's certainly not a part of the sort of grant establishment and he's coming in to sort of be the compromise right. candidate the guy that's going to bridge the gap between the the reform-minded people the anti-reconstruction people and the sort of you know stalwart republicans was grantism this idea of the corruption of the grant administration and the whiskey ring was it the nail in the coffin well the, the door you're really opening here is the compromise that does bring hayes into office this is the compromise of 1877 where in, in great brevity it's clear that the Democratic candidate, Tilden, has the popular vote. And within three states, he probably still has the electoral votes, but the Republicans are pointing to enough shenanigans that the Democrats have been up to to make that murky. I mean, there is some space for a legitimate discussion, though Tilden probably really won both popular and electoral count. But a commission's made, it's pretty partisan. And if you think about that fatigue that Ron Chernow gets at, you basically have Republicans saying to Democrats, you know what, we're absolutely ready to bag it on Reconstruction. We're going to pull troops out of the South and you will have what the Democrats call, quote unquote, home rule. 
course, for the, the KKK in that crowd, home rule means white rule. Right. And, and Greg, the other word that they use to describe the compromise, they call it the Faustian bargain of 1877. Absolutely. It's so well put. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's 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 fascinating to me, um, you know, this this era of history, how complicated the politics are and frankly, how much they resonate to the you know political dynamics of today. That, that's what I always find fascinating about American history is the cyclical nature of it. 100 percent. There is this tendency to look back and think, well, to put on our own Ulysses S. Grant hat and think that people were more honest in the past or better in the past. You have as many rogues and villains and heroes in past generations as you do today. I cannot personally think of a more corrupt election than that of Hayes. And Hayes himself is actually a fairly honest man, but the machinery that gets him into office, there has never been, in my mind, a more blatant disregard of the Constitution, of representative government, and all that jazz in terms of how we ended up with the president than the election of Hayes, who had interest in seeing civil rights improve for Black Americans, but when it came to this compromise, he is a perfect example of the Republican Party dialing back the charge that they were leading for actual equality. I will jump in there, guys. Uh, that's a good stopping place because we are definitely going to be getting into the Faustian bargain, the compromise of 1877, and see how all of these factors play out. But if I let Greg keep talking, we will get into spoiler territory. I know you know how it ends up, Dr. Jackson, but for <laughs> everyone else... You have to listen to the next episode of 1865 to find out what really happens. Greg, thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. And also, thank you for being on the other end of that phone call when Steve is having his crises and trying to figure out this story. I hope we have not given you any panic attacks as you listen to the history as we have tried to portray it. <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Look, first of all, I, I, I do think that historians need to sometimes be able to enjoy drama. But even then, you guys are as faithful as I think anyone can be before stepping into, you know, full-on historian mode. I, I respect and appreciate that. And I feel like you captured the essence of this era, which is really crucial for people to, to better understand and know. I won't get too philosophical, but maybe a little, you know, Aristotle, poetry is more true than history sort of statement. You, you capture the, the poetry of the moment. You convey the feelings, the, the grittiness at times uh, of what was going on, even if in doing so you have to make composite characters or you know kind of shift the narrative around. So I, of course, just encourage people, if they really want to know where the I's are dotted and T's are crossed to go read a specific book, maybe listen to History That Doesn't Suck, my podcast. But really just thank you for shining a light on Reconstruction. If you are a history nerd like Eric and Steve, if you want to dive more into the history of this era, History That Doesn't Suck podcast did a four-episode series covering Reconstruction. It's episode 73 to 76. It goes from Lincoln's Reconstruction before Johnson up into the Compromise of 1877. It'll shed a lot of light on what's about to happen in 1865 and also just give you some more context for this entire series. So thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jackson, host of History That Doesn't Suck, and thanks for his kind words talking about shining a light on what actually happened. We will be shining a light in the next episode 
on the great conflict that has finally come to our final episode here. Grant has decided to protect his best friend. He is convinced that Henderson was a, a partisan actor. But now that Henderson's been fired, the question is, what is Bristow going to do? Is he going to push forward with the investigation or is he going to let it go? And as far as whether Babcock's guilty or innocent, well, we're going to find out that next week too. All those are open questions. And the only way you will get an answer is if you tune in to episode 10, the final episode of this season of 1865, the audio drama, and then be sure to come back here and listen to 1865 inside the episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter or at Facebook at 1865 Podcast for more inside information and true history from the show. And if you really want to help us out, you're a big fan of the show, please become a patron at patreon.com slash 1865podcast. Members there get exclusive content, early access, ad-free listening, so much more cool stuff there. Become a member at patreon.com slash 1865 1865 is an airship production. This episode is hosted by me, Rob McCollum, produced by Eric Archilla, audio editing by Molly Bach, theme music by Lindsey Graham. Thank you for being here and join us next time for Inside the Episode, 1865.